Welcome to the Rock God's Living Funeral Podcast. Our podcast is growing a little following, which is really exciting to see. And we actually have a Facebook page, so you can search us up and you can like the page and you'll know when a new podcast has been posted and you'll see some other peripheral postings, videos, and the like. So if you are enjoying these podcasts, find us on Facebook. Just search out Rock God's Living Funeral Podcast. You'll find us, like the page. And if you're enjoying it, then share the page, share the podcast link. Okay, enough self-promotion. Let's get to it. John Wardle is back again. We're thrilled to have him after his uh, triumph in our Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen podcast. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Are we talking about triumph? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, not next time, maybe. It's the Canadian power trio. Just, <laughs> yeah, just there's not another one. It. There's no other mind. ones that I can think of. <laughs> they really set the bar. Today we're going to be talking about Motley Crue. I'm so excited. John is a big fan. I'm a big fan. And what a story that this band just blazed right through the 80s and early 90s. Just what a fantastic ride to be, you know, just a fan of, be a part of in some way. And John, you've done a little bit of uh, research on that glam metal scene. The Sunset Strip, the Whiskey A Go-Go. Yeah, a little bit. Sure, I mean, that is... scene. A scene that's in our in our mind as rock fans is kind of a mythical place. I mean, prior to that, the Doors were on the Sunset Strip. Led Zeppelin played there, and it was kind of you know it's it's Los Angeles. It's where the recording industry is set, so it's it's mythic in a way, right? I'm thinking of the Sunset Strip. The a lot of punk bands were playing there and kind of causing havoc and destroying the clubs. So the 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 promoters there and the club owners are like, look, we don't want these bands playing here anymore. Let's just book some local guys. And, you know, maybe that'll settle this stuff down. So that's really how the local bands started getting booked and kind of that glam metal uh, scene started because they're all bands that were either from L.A. or had moved to L.A. to, to try to make a go of it. And with the with the promoters kind of changing over to booking local bands, that's kind of how it started at the Starwood and the and the Whiskey and Rainbow uh, Rock Club or whatever. And a lot of the bands that came out of that scene are, are we we recognize Right. The crew being one of the big ones, of course. And you and I have spoken about Hanoi Rocks, which I've never really listened to Hanoi Rocks. You know, apparently they're really founding fathers of that scene in terms of how they dressed and, you know, the types of hard, hard music that they played and how they carried on. Um, so they were there, you know, of course, Poison came out of there. Although Cinderella, I think, was from Philly. They were out of there, you know, Dokken, Warrants, all that sort of stuff. But the crew was really founding of that harder type of, you know, glam metal, where a lot of it was, and Def Leppard gets thrown in there, although they were in Europe, but they were a really big part of that scene too. They weren't on that strip, but, you know, the crew kind of brought more of a, of a rock and roll uh, metal type of flavor to it than some of the other bands. You can see that with their music and what they say their influences are. I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, Alice Cooper and Kiss and that were very informative of the, of the Sunset Strip scene at the time. And the crew have said they they were more into Deep Purple and uh, and like even Sweet and bands like that were like rock and roll bands. Because Mick Mars is a bit older, that was of his vintage, the Deep Purples. Yeah, and Nikki Six has said that too. So I mean, he's younger. It's true. So I don't know how he you know stumbled across that as much. They kind of had a disdain for Kiss. Nikki Six has said just because you know they were kind of they played a part on stage, and when they got off stage, they were completely different. Whereas the crew, that's just who they are. 
But yeah, the Sunset Strip, I mean, it's just this this mythical place, right? And they had a scene there where all the bands were competing against one another, but also self-promoting and also hanging out and informing each other's music and changing bands. Like the band London, they appeared in that uh, awesome documentary, the, the Decline of Western Civilization, The Metal Years. Yep. A milestone doc about the scene. But they appeared in that and they like, Members of Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and two or three other different bands made their way through the band London. So, I mean, this was a scene where they kind of shared musical interests, they shared lifestyles. I mean, a famous bartender who worked at the Rainbow Rock Club, I forget her name now, but she, in an interview, went over, you know, their nightly hangout spots. And they're all the same. On Monday, it was this bar. On Tuesday, it was this bar. And everybody in the scene would be hanging out there and, and partying after their show or promoting and and talking to one another so it became this really a scene unto itself and a scene for everybody in it much like the punk scene you know in new york or or london kind of was a scene for everybody there until it exploded i mean the sunset strip was the same it was kind of a a scene for everybody who was in there it was self-promoting and the local fans and then you know the record companies just got in there and, and put money in behind all these bands and they exploded but I mean, in many ways, they're informed by the punk uh, scene, too, of self-promotion and do it yourself and get out there and hand out the flyers. I mean, the stories are on the strip that at any part of the day, there would be dozens of people handing out flyers for their bands because they weren't getting promoted anyway else. Yeah. And to me, that's that's what I love so much about that scene, or at least maybe my romanticized version of it. Mm. To me, that whole organic way that these bands would rise to the top. If they had the talent, you know, this was a this was a, a scene where the most talented bands would make it to the top. All they needed to do was just put up posters and get a gig mm. and everyone was talking to one another. So if there was a, a band that sort of had a great opening night, mm. word would get out, you know, their next show, there would be a little few more people there. And then the next show, there would be a few more people there. And then they would find it a little bit easier to book their next gig. And before you know it, if they had the talent mm. and the luck, mm-hmm. but if they had the talent, I know the record companies got involved at the end of this cycle. Mm-hmm. But the early parts of the cycle and the and the mid parts of this cycle, you know, it was really due to the talent of the band. Mm-hmm. And I... I I'm sure it wasn't that way exactly, and I, I'm sure there was a lot of machinations going on, and you know, I'm sure a lot of really talented musicians and bands never quite made it. But yes. that's my romanticized view of the Sunset Strip in the '80s: is that anything was possible. In our from our earlier band, we spoke about Van Halen. That's also where they started, and that's basically their story, right? I mean, they were Eddie was so hugely talented that they eventually took that strip by storm and that's where they started too and they were kind of the foundation for what came after that there that was in the late 70s and this is all through the 80s but there's another story alex van halen saying eddie when you're doing your tapping turn around and face me because uh they didn't have a record deal yet right and it's like we don't want anyone to see like all the other guitarists are at the show right so if they saw that or they could mimic it and they already had a record deal maybe or they could claim it so there was that kind of natural competition too. And and that's how homogeneous, I guess, the scene was. Everybody was just there at all the shows, at all the parties, and just living it, right? And trying so many bands swapping members or thinking they could have a better shot with this band. And, you know, famously GNR was like that. It was two bands combined into one. And Slash had 
you know, auditioned for Poison and somehow did not get into Poison, thank God. <laughs> but uh, what's his name there? CeCe or whatever, CeCe DeVille. Good guitars too. Yeah. But I guess he, he brought more what they wanted. Slash, they didn't see what they wanted in Slash somehow. But I digress. Like the whole scene was just, it's like a, a training ground or whatever. It's like a minor league baseball team or whatever. And some get called up to the show, right? I mean, everybody's just living it and into it. And that's their focus, which yeah. is exciting. I mean, say what you want about, you know, all the excess and the whatever, however we look at it now, all these scenes, you know, whether it's London or even this in Seattle, what happened after, or in one way that we try to label it a scene, but in another way, it is a scene. It's just people just living it and trying to, trying to get it done, which is really cool. And of course, we come to it at later on when we, when it gets more promotion, unless you're lucky enough to be 21 and going to the Sunset Strip. Yeah, Don't get well, me started. We were not 21. No. Uh, we were not in uh, Los Angeles. When I became aware of Motley Crue, I was at camp, uh, <laughs> overnight camp, between grades five and six. So I guess some older, you know, campers, you know, were listening to Shout of the Devil. Of course, I thought that was, you know, the coolest thing ever. I came home from camp and I told my mother... I, I want to go and buy an album. And this is my third album ever. I wish it was my first album that I ever bought. That would be a really cool story. I remember putting it on in the tape machine of the uh, 1981 Green Rabbit. I was really wondering what my mother's reaction was going to be because there was already the startings of the Tipper Gore movement. The parents, whatever it was. Parental Music Resource Center, I think it was called. So that was already starting up. Motley Crue was already a lightning rod, even though yes. this album had just blown up. Motley Crue was, along with ACDC, were sort of very much the lightning rods to this burgeoning parental Christian movement. Well, now, her, her reaction was not what I expected. It was actually, I wanted her to be a little bit more upset. I mean, what's the point of listening to heavy metal if, you know, your mom is sort of into it? That just was not the reaction that I wanted. And then I went to school on the first day of grade six, and we had to tell what we did in the summer and what our favorite music was. Mm. So as people are going around, it's, you know, Culture Club, Naked Eyes, Haircut 100. <laughs> and all the while I'm thinking, wow, you know, new year, new me. I'm going to, everyone's going to be blown away at how cool I am because I'm going to, you know, say that my favorite band and album is Molly Crew Shout of the Devil. So it gets to me and I say it and the looks that I got, uh, the reception that that got, you know, my advice to parents with kids about that age is just get them to conform. Just get your kids to conform. Get your kids to like whatever music that the other kids are listening to. Don't try to be different because it really was not worth it in the end. But I was just kidding, parents. Oh, yes. Yeah. You were the Antichrist Devil's child in that classroom. They're like, what? This guy's going to murder me. He likes Motley Crue. I may as well have just taken a pigeon and bitten its head off right in the middle of the classroom. <laughs> a bat. Don't do that now, please. Don't bite a bat. No, no, God, no. Yeah, my, I mean, I remember, I didn't buy that tape. I was uh, into a lot of music at that time. I remember maybe it was more a bit more poppy, like uh, Huey Lewis in the News and Bruce Springsteen and stuff, Prince or whatever. 
But the first I remember is the video for uh, a track that a track that we we love a lot. Al, looks yep. that kill. Fantastic song, just amazing song. It's a it's a great rock and roll song. But I remember the video for that. I, that's probably the first time. I was like, "What in the hell is going on here?" <laughs> Wasn't there a spinning pentagram also in that video that like lights up the floor? Maybe that's a shot of the devil video. No, that's looks that kill. Right. Yeah. So I remember the looks that kill and the whole image that they had. And it, it's crazy, man. But the song, the video is crazy. Yep. But the song is awesome song. In preparation for this podcast, I've been listening to it a lot. And yeah. it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's Absolutely really, really amazing really song. Great riff. You know, so that was the first time I think I heard or, or became aware of the crew. I was like, whoa. Definitely made for the MTV era, too, with the, what, all the glam they had going on and the yeah. outfits and and the mute and the, the looks of the guys and the dyed hair and I mean it was just uh, the timing was right too right the visuals for me were just as important maybe even more important than the music itself the the tape that I got had many you know it, it folded out it had many many different panels yeah and had different pictures of of the guys in the band all glammed up yeah. and I used to stare at their pictures. And there was Nikki Six with the the two dark lines under right. his eyes. Yeah, more paint kind of thing. And then Tommy Lee just had the two under one eye, I think. Right. And I swear to God, I spent <laughs> hours trying to decide like which one was cooler. Like, would I have go with Nikki's or would I go with Tommy's or would I have? I thought I would have one line under one eye and then two under the other. The look was so critical. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big part of the what was going on there in the scene, right? And rock and roll in general that time. That came out of the like the New York Dolls and that and that kind of pop, poppy punk type of thing. Like, just having a look. Well, I don't know. Is that around today? Not as much. I mean, it's more like, you know, just regular clothes or whatever, I, I guess. I can't think of a band where they're they're really going for a, a certain look and they're, and they're dressing up like they used to, right? I haven't seen a sequin in about 20 years. <laughs> Not a lot of tights nowadays. Even the guitars, you know, have no style. To, there's no flying Vs anymore. There's no designs on the guitars. They got a little carried away with the triple necks and the quadruple necks. <laughs> I've seen Bon Jovi and he came out with a triple neck guitar that he could barely carry. I was like, wow. <laughs> I loved it. But then what, Steve Vai had like that heart-shaped quadruple neck guitar or whatever in a video? Yeah. You can't even play that thing, but it looks cool. But yeah, I mean, that was the whole the whole scene, right? Uh, an extrapolation of the 70s scene where even band like Led Zeppelin had a definite look to them. I mean, how they were dressed, how they presented themselves and, and how they played and like him playing with a bow and all this stuff. I mean, and of course the excess, they just kind of continued, uh, they, they built on that, right? Where when excess and was synonymous with rock and roll, I mean that's kind of we we've lost touch with that. I mean that was really important in the '70s and certainly in the '80s scene. I mean that was just how rock and rollers were. Like that's what they wanted to be perceived as. Yeah, total excess all the time. I think the only place you see that in music is some areas of hip hop where, you know, guys are spending six hundred thousand dollars in a day when yeah. they sign their deal or whatever. It's a lot of consumption excess. Yeah. It doesn't translate or doesn't bleed over so much into the lifestyle, mainly because the hip hop artists, they're just working too damn hard. Yeah, it's not the same at all. 
what did you think of the Helter Skelter cover at that time when you're listening to the to the Shout of the Devil? That was actually a really important song for me because that song was really quite heavy. And then after I got Shout of the Devil, a few months later, I went back and I got Too Fast for Love, their first album. Mm, right. And Livewire, which was right. the single off of that album, was really right. quite heavy as well. And yeah. between those two songs, that was a real breakthrough for me as a kid because I thought, wow, you know, these songs are pretty heavy and I like them. And if I like music this heavy, then, you know, it sort of opened up a few doors that I didn't think that. Yeah, to explore some, some more metal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that sort of stuck with me through the 80s and 90s, just sort of dabbling in some pretty heavy music. But also, just as an aside, when you think about the cruise version of Helter Skelter, it's honestly not that different from the Beatles version. It just it, it says more about the Beatle how heavy the Beatles version was as well. Nikki Six has said that's what he gravitated toward that song early when he heard the Beatles for the first time. It's just a I mean that is just a he almost a heavy metal song as it is on yeah. the White Album. Yeah. I mean it's loud and rocking. I guess Nikki Six was you know, the creative force behind the band and he yeah. brought a lot to the table and that's what he said about helter skelter i guess he was really kind of the creative force which is interesting too because it's not usually the bassist that is you know the lead that's kind of cool the bassist is kind of the creative force of the band i mean usually it's the guitarist with the lead singer right yeah i remember smoking in the boys room video and i remember that was a big hit although it was a cover but it was so awesome it was awesome and they had the actor from the hills have eyes the guy the bald guy yeah. <laughs> he was the principal with the wig on yeah yeah. It was just It was fun. that time when, you know, it was made for MTV, right? Yeah. I mean, Twisted Sister had Niedermeyer in there. But I mean, it was just like kind of a throwback to what we knew. We thought was cool, but it was updated. Yeah, I'll never forget that. I mean, that guy, who I don't know his name, but. He made a career. He was in uh, Cuckoo's Nest as well. He didn't, he didn't have a speaking part. But yeah, I mean, Hills Have Eyes. I'll never forget going to the video store and looking for a movie on a Friday night and seeing that cover. I'd be like, oh my God, I can't watch that. I've never seen that movie. We we saw it around that same time. <laughs> Just, yeah, it was sort of a uh, slasher deliverance. Oh boy, the hills have eyes. No thanks. Or the last house on the left. Wasn't he in that one too or something? Like, oh my God. Listen, he, he made a good career for himself. Yeah, he had it made there. He had a good look. <laughs> and he was a good principal with a wig on. Don't they knock his wig off in the video? Like, yes. But that was a big hit, as well as Home Sweet Home. It had to be the first power ballad. Yeah, and oddly, it's not like I looked at their chart action. It's nowhere near their biggest hit, and I, it didn't actually do that well on the charts. That's probably the biggest thing overall that this movement gave to us was the power ballad kind of, you know, culminating in patience, if you will, as as the, like, that was it. That was the last one, and GNR did their thing. But, I mean, the power ballads, my God. Every Rose Has Its Thorn was one of the biggest hits. Yeah, and that's a lot of these bands, that their power ballads were their number one songs because they had that crossover appeal. <laughs> oh, yes. That was a later one. And White Lion had, yes. like, Children Cry. When the Children Cry. When the Children Cry. Yeah, I mean, it just became power ballad. But Home Sweet Home, I love Home Sweet Home. I love it. 
But so yeah, you're saying that like did not. That. You you are claiming that that song on the charts did not chart overwhelmingly well. No, it did not. That is shocking to me. I thought it would have done much better. Yeah, their top charting stuff was not. It doesn't include Home Sweet Home. Let's see, Al. Number their first top ten single was number eight, Without You. Without you in my life. You're saying that was their first number top ten, uh, top 10 single. Correct. Are you serious? That's kind of power ballady too, right? Yeah, Without definitely. But then they had a number six. Their highest track was number six. The title track to Dr. Feelgood is their highest charting single. That's shocking to me. Number six. And that kind of says a lot about what was going on in 1989 on the radio. The, I mean, radio just had it. The charts had embraced this type of music. But when when uh, Home Sweet Home came out, that was more like Madonna in time. You know what I mean? Yes. It hadn't been quite embraced yet by the charts. I mean, it was a, it's a hugely popular song with the fans. Well, but... I know in the dirt where they talk about Home Sweet Home and how MTV had to institute a new rule because it was winning the they every week they had a fans choice video right. and home sweet home won that like 16 weeks in a row and MTV had to implement a new rule to kick home sweet home off yeah out of that competition because they were just like it would have gone on for months and months and months so that's really that's yeah, stuck so in that, my mind like they had the fan the fans were behind them from day one like but everybody else caught up, you know, when it was the record companies got behind in the later 80s. Yeah. After, like, Bon Jovi went huge with Slippery When Wet. That was, then it was Game On and Def Leppard. And that's when, you know, Dr. Feelgood appeared. But Girls, Girls, Girls hit number 12. So that was a big one for them, too. Yeah, that's not bad. Smoking in the Boys Room was 16. Okay. So, you know, the top 20 single, for sure, it was, you know, in the, uh, in the zeitgeist and in people's minds, for sure, but... But for whatever reason, yeah, I mean, Home Sweet Home only hit number 89 on the charts. That's shocking to me. Me too. It's one of their best songs. But it really was before its time in, in that way where, I mean, Power Ballad, if you farted out a Power Ballad in 1987, you had a top 10 hit, right? Yeah. There was just a little bit before the curve there on that. And that's what Motley Crue is like in terms of this scene. I mean, they're they're ahead of their time. They had the glam thing going. They had the rock and roll, like like you said, with Shout at the Devil, an early album. Looks That Kill is a freaking rock song. They were leaders of that of that group. And just before their time a little bit. Until it caught up. And then they had a huge multi-platinum success in 1989, but that was years after they had started, right? My favorite song by Motley Crue is Wild Side. Yeah. Off of Girls, Girls, Girls. And awesome. it's just a driving song. Great riff. But what I love about that song is that the last 30 seconds of that song, there's a, a window smashing, there's gunshots going off, there's ambulance sirens, there's women screaming. And that last 30 seconds, they just show that mid-80s urban center of New York and Los Angeles where it had just rotted to the core. It was that whole, you know, Reagan era where crack had come in and just, you know, blown away the last vestiges of the inner city. Mm-hmm. You're in the time of Escape from New York where they just walled up New York and just gave up on it. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea where the police and society as a whole, certainly the government, had just given up on 
the inner city. You know, it seemed like there was areas of these cities where the police wouldn't even go into. Mm. It was just anarchy. Mm. And I just love that Motley Crue is the band that just showed that anarchy and that decrepit urban demise so well. And it just, to me, it just crystallized in that last 30 seconds of Wildside. Well, that really goes back to their scene, too, and something that Guns N' Roses touched on, you know, with Appetite for Destruction and what they were doing there, and they're at the tail end of that. They're certainly in right in the middle of the scene, but and probably became the biggest band out of that scene at the end of the day. They've said, I think Duff McKagan said, that Appetite was just about Guns N' Roses going through the ringer of Hollywood, which is was everything that you were saying. I mean, they were broke. Some of them, like, famously, GNR, some of them lived on the street for a bit. There was no safety net for them. They had rock and roll or nothing else, and they were just going through the grinder, going through the ringer. In fact, I think Duff put it like, Guns N' Roses going through the ringer of Hollywood. <laughs> that was an, a much music interview. I think they were drunk. I don't know. Like Slash and him were in the interview. They were at the tail end of this. It was excess all the way. Remember that, the early GNR... Yeah. They were drinking openly from the Jack Daniels bottle. And Duff's like, Sabat's gone through the ringer of Hollywood. <laughs> but that's what it was about. They had been through the ringer. Look, and when you look at those guys, you're like, yes, true enough. Duff and Slash had been through the ringer. But Motley Crue is the same way. I mean, that was goes back to that scene being all they had. So they were self-promoting and trying to make a go of it. But living what you said. I mean, it was dirty and grungy and they had no other way to go with it. Yeah, and that's that desperation comes through in the music, too, and just their drive. Like, this was it for them. They, as you said, they had no other alternative. They couldn't go home. They didn't have a home to go home to. They had no education, no skills. Yeah. This was it for them. It was all or nothing Yeah. in the music and in the lifestyle. Yeah, so you, I think that comes through in the cruise music, absolutely, uh, more so than some of the other bands from that time. You know, I mean, GNR has that too, the crew and GNR. And some of the other bands are more, their heart isn't in it quite as much or they're not quite as talented as, as these bands. I think you might have mentioned Poison and, and, and sort of the later 80s bands that really came through. And that's, to me, I think, is what's missing. If you compare Motley Crue and Poison, you know, they, yeah. they're both very glamorous. The music is very similar. A lot of fans who like Motley Crue definitely like Poison and vice versa. Yeah. But Motley Crue's glam was much easier to understand and stomach, really, mm -hmm. because the music was real and that desperation in the music was there. Whereas Poison, you didn't get that same sense that this was all they had. It was this or nothing. Yeah, Poison was more of a show, it looked like. It was more like what I think Vince Neil or Nikki, one of them said about Kiss, like, Kiss on stage is the star man or whatever and the drag, you know. But off stage, they're just business people who run the band Kiss. Yeah. You got that sense with Poison, too. Like, they're putting on a show. And there was something not maybe not quite disingenuous about it, but not as sincere. Is like, that's just who these guys are. Sure, they're glamming it up. It rang much truer for whatever reason. Yeah. And what they did in concert, if you remember the video for Home Sweet Home, every scene of the band is like covered in sweat yeah they're like exhausted and just putting everything they have into that performance yeah you know in the the video for wild side you see tommy lee's rotating drum set okay Iconic. 
Icon- totally iconic. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's a lot of people who will sort of sneer about that. Well, of course. A lot of people will sneer about the whole thing, Al. True. But, okay, that rotating drum set was really important to me. <laughs> One, because it was in featured in Wild Side, which is my favorite song from yeah. the band. But that just encapsulates everything we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Their desperation and their commitment to the music, to the scene, and to the fans. They would do anything mm-hmm. to give their fans that added little boost of entertainment. That was definitely it. I don't think a band has done that before or since. Certainly not. I mean, that was a Motley Crue thing. I've, I've actually never seen them live, and I'm not that I'm bitter about that I missed the Dr. Feelgood tour, but I'm still very angry about yeah, you for seeing that and me not, Al. <laughs> I don't know what happened. We, we no, I'm just crossed wires. I'm so jealous about that. I remember I saw you right after, <laughs> like literally the same night. I was doing whatever dumb, dumb shit I was doing, and then you showed up like, oh, I just saw the Motley Crue. I was like, get out of here. <laughs> Was it a Skydome show? It was a Skydome show, and I, I don't want to reopen old wounds, but his drum set didn't just come out to center stage. It went up to the top of the stadium and like went on tracks right over the entire crowd and then rotated. I've seen it. They must have had a concert video or, or film, or they showed him much music back in there, because I've seen it went out over the crowd, right? Yeah. And there's a camera in there with Tommy Lee when he's drumming, and he's like rotating. <laughs> And then he had to come down on the long ropes, right? Like right into the middle of the crowd. Right, 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 right. Anyway, I was hoping we wouldn't get into that because I I was just hoping we could avoid that whole conversation. I remember that. I I remember certain things. I remember you coming. You're so happy. That was good enough for me. You were very pleased. Well, thank you, John. I wish you could have been there. You would have have loved it. But, you know, they're still touring, so you never know. Not quite the same thing, but... Listen, one one of the reasons why we are featuring Motley Crue on the Rock Gods Living Funeral podcast is not just because we both love the band and they're so important to the overall music of our lives, but actually Vince Neil was, I saw him on Facebook as one of these before lockdown, Uh post lockdown coronavirus memes. Right. So the before was him. Oh, like at Shout of the Devil time? At Shout of the Devil, and then, oh, and then, and then the post like was Vince Neil circa, you know, probably 2017 or something on stage. So. His vocals are not quite as good as they used to be. Is that what you're hinting at? I've seen some video too, Al, and it's, wow, like, go check that out if you haven't, because his vocals on the last tour, oh my. And yeah. Mick Mars, that's what you initially said. He's got serious health issues, right? He's had this spinal condition uh, for for decades now. It just causes, I think, a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain. It, yeah, that was in the dirt too, right? Where he yeah. went over that, and yeah, it causes him intense pain. And I think he had his spine fused or something, so yeah. he can't move around that well. It's it's unbelievable that he was still touring as 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 recently as he was. I mean, besides uh, Little Frampton Comes Alive, do you feel like we do? I mean, is there a better, like, talk box than Kickstart My Heart? That was awesome. Kickstart My Heart is... I'm I'm surprised Kickstart My Heart didn't actually out-chart Dr. Feelgood. Because to me, Dr. Feelgood was was a very popular song. But then when Kickstart My Heart came out, I mean, I thought that just blew the doors off the whole Dr. Feelgood album and and from a sales perspective and a charting perspective. But I guess... I'm wrong about that too. 
Dr. Feelgood, I remember well, was the first single. So they yes. decided the first single would be the title track. And I guess that's why, because right when they released that album, it like shot up the charts and that was their first single. Kickstart My Heart hit 27, which is not as high as we all thought for sure, but definitely, I remember the video and everything on the Kickstart My Heart. Wow, 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 I love the wow, wow. Oh yeah, it's great. Great song, great video. And I can tell you, you know, I, I've played hockey my whole life and I've been driving myself to beer league hockey for my whole adult life. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that most songs don't do anything one way or the other to get you ready for playing hockey. Yeah. There's only two songs that actually have some impact, I feel. One of them is Kickstart My Heart. Yeah. That'll get you going. And the other one is Epic by Faith No More. Oh, yeah. Those are the only two songs ever that I really feel impact my play. Nice. But, love it. I, I love Faith No More. But Kickstart My Heart still, doesn't matter how many times I hear it, it still gets me oh, yeah, It's great up. for the sporting events. They still use it, right? Yep. Dr. Feelgood album was one of the biggest albums for me in 89. All those songs I remember really well. Yeah, I remember you absolutely loving that album. Oh, that was great. I loved it. I loved every song almost on that album. Don't Go Away Mad is still one of my favorites. It's my favorite crew song. I love that song. That's no, just a great rock song. Oh, now, great. one, one uh, mystery is I wanted to ask. The song She Goes Down. Right. The song that opens with the sound effect of a zipper. I, I was going to ask you, <laughs> what, what is that song about, in your opinion? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I have not, it's kind of, it's like uh, Lane Pipe by David Wilcox. I'm not sure what the real meaning is either, you know? Yeah. It's, to me, it's right up there with like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. There's a lot of different stories and interpretations. Great oh album, though. And it really served as some vindication for being Motley Crue fans. It just... Oh, Dr. Su- Feelgood? Yeah, the it's album? just such a great album. And, and for me personally, just even for you to, to love that album the way that you did, mm. It was such a vindication for me because here's, you know, my friend who loves music and has great musical taste. And if John's into this, then that really means something to me. So that was just it was just like took away some of that grade six angst of, you know, being the one guy who liked Motley Crue. It was awesome. Well, that's good. I'm happy to hear that. They just got it in under the wire before grunge totally took over. Totally changed everything. Yeah. You know, and they and they like Metallica. They had some trouble and some missteps, sort of adjusting to the new world. And yeah, you know, they they did what they could, and you know, they they cut their hair, and that was a sort oh, of Metallica movie. or the crew. Well, Metallica did, and Motley Crue did as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was some, and Metallica had some popularity there finally too in the late '80s, right? Yeah. With uh, one and uh, but oh my god, the Black Album. When did that come out? 90, 90, 90? 90 I don't know. Ninety-one, I think. That was huge, obviously. But, I mean, yeah, it's true. Real Old Metallica fans still never got over the Black Album. They call it a sellout or whatever. Motley Crue never had that problem. Dr. Feelgood was not a sellout. Dr. No. Feelgood was just a kick-ass album. Yeah. I think, overall, Motley Crue fans are just more laid back about the band. And I, I sort of compare their post-Dr. Feelgood a little bit to... Van Halen or Metallica, where the fans just were so sensitive about every move the band made or didn't make, 
uh, bringing in other singers like Van Halen brought in Gary Sharon and it was like the fans just melted down and there was so much angst and not accepted now I think Molly Crew fans are just like you know what if you're still into the band then go for it that's fine if if you're sort of off the Molly Crew train then it was a great ride and we'll catch you later the band is like that too from what totally. I've seen in they're like I mean, they were trying to be pigeonholed as devil worshippers or whatever. They just went with the road of the punches. Like, they didn't care that much. Yeah. It's like, if you're into it, great. We're not like that. I mean, we're not devil worshippers, whatever. If you want to call us that, it's like, whatever, the whole time. I mean, they just did their thing, right? You know, they just wanted to play good music and have an amazing time. I don't think they took the music or the scene or themselves too seriously at any time. And and that yeah. I think that sort of spilled over into the fan base. Whereas, you know, okay, so they cut their hair. Okay, so I'm not going to go out and buy Generation Swine. But mm-hmm. they can still play music and they can if they still are touring, then good for them. Just in the last few years, you know, they came out with The Dirt, which I know yes. you, you read. and That's a great read. For me, I mean, I haven't read a huge number of biographies of rock and roll bands because mm. sometimes I don't want to know. Mm, yeah, there's there's something to be said for that sense of mystery. Or... But The Dirt, for me, by far, is the best rock and roll biography that I've ever read. Well, and that really reinvigorated their, their career in a way, that book. It's a great book. I love how it was laid out that everybody kind of had their part and this chapter was about Mick Mars and this, now Vince Neil's telling his story. Really interesting story. You know, so much happened. And it's with Nikki Six, Kickstart My Heart is uh, almost dying. I mean, the, the, the stories are crazy. The car crash, Mick Mars' health issues, Vince Neil losing his daughter. I mean, that part of the book I found really interesting. Yeah. And I could really, you know, understand his reaction to that. I mean, he was freaking out. I mean... His, his daughter was sick or what did she die i can't recall now she, she died yeah so that is like unbelievably upsetting and just his whole account of that was really touching i thought in, in, in a book where you know people make a big deal of all the, the excess stories but i think it was really a heartfelt story of, of their lives and i think that's what came through in that book how sincere it was you know how open they were to just telling their story without trying to present something that was not true or or, or whatever or try to fit into a mold that that had been they've been pigeonholed into it's just their story and it was very sincere and i think that that's what made that book so great yeah the way it was laid out was ingenious Mm. each band member got you know a series of chapters then they had you know a couple chapters from you know some of the some of their managers and handlers yeah and that was an interesting viewpoint too but it was consistent that's how you know that the the guys' stories and the bands were were so genuine. Is that it was completely backed up by yeah. managers and engineers and producers. Yeah, and it's yeah, it was very sincere. I loved it. It was a great book. I think it seemed to have done really really well. I didn't research that, but they seemed to have sold a ton of the copies and really interest in the band grew. And you know, they made the Netflix movie about it. I mean, there was high interest. And they've been touring since that, and it certainly helped them get back on the road and and have more interest in them. This book was hugely successful. Yeah, and the book's been around for a long time. I remember it's been around since 2003, 2004, and and, the Netflix special just came out last year. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a long burn for a rock and roll book. Yeah, for sure. So there's high interest. 
I mean, there's like I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago or whatever, I heard Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. Joe Elliott said, I, I think he was referring to 2018 or maybe it was 2019. Anyway, one of those years was their most lucrative touring year in the history of Def Leppard. So there's definitely an interest. I guess it's our age group who was willing to spend $200 on a ticket and want to revisit those bands. I don't know. It's up for debate why that is, but it's mind boggling to me that Def Leppard had their most lucrative touring year in like 2018 or 2019. That's unbelievable because they've been touring for years. And they also had coming out of hysteria, one of the biggest albums of the entire decade. One of the biggest albums of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Hysteria sold a gazillion copies. I don't so know what's the tour this summer. It's is it Motley Crue, Def Leppard, and Poison? Is that yes. what's coming? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure it's been canceled, unfortunately, due to the situation we're in. Yeah, but yeah, Poison and Def Leppard and Motley Crue. That's a you know what? That's a solid show. Yeah, they're doing well. They sold tons of tickets to that. And the staying power of these bands is unbelievable. Yeah, the the buying power of their fans has gone up and up and up. Yeah, which, as you me. mentioned, that's probably the reason for the. The, you know how lucrative their later tours are but probably yeah you're either buying tickets for your kids to see ariana grande or you're buying tickets for yourself to see you know motley Crue and def leppard play or they could do a, the vegas thing why not if they were able to do uh like aerosmith that's great and if you're a crew fan you just go to vegas and you you know you see the show and they're playing there for like six months or whatever it's a great that would be a great setup yeah i could see them doing that why not, right? You just live in Vegas for that time and just go to the show. All right. Thank you, John, for coming along and talking about Motley Crue. No, my, my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Rock Gods Living Funeral podcast. We will be back soon. Until then, see you later. <laughs>